chainsaw history. Like, we've both been sick off and on. Now, I've been sick twice. You've been sick once, just in the very recent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fall here in Georgia. Yeah. Between the tree sex and the children, it's everything's yeah. trying to kill us. Oh, and then the plague. Don't forget the plague. Yeah. Well, speaking of everybody trying to kill us. Hey. We're going to hear a lot about uh, some shitty people in the background, but this is we're going to try something different today. So welcome whoever's listening to Chainsaw History. Uh, we are the podcast where we look at the important figures of history and show them the respect a baby gives a diaper. <laughs> uh, I, I'm Jamie Chambers, and this is my sister Bambi. Hello. And you can learn all about what we are about and support the show by visiting us at ChainsawHistory.com, which will funnel you directly into our Patreon where uh, we have all the episodes, show notes, and bonus stuff. So go check that out. More at the end of the show on that. We are a comedy history podcast. I am not a historian, but I did take history in college. And uh, I'm a guy with a lot of really strange priorities. I'm a girl with a lot of odd hobbies. Does that count? <laughs> and, well, baby, we've uh, you know recently had Labor Day here. And it was also your birthday not that long ago. Yes, it was. And I felt bad for Yay. the... The entire month of your birthday, um, I inflicted the story of George Wallace on you, who you hated. <laughs> hated more I hated than I ever so imagined. so much. <laughs> I have never hated anything more. So after everything we've been through recently, my original plan was for us to do a what I called the Roosevelt Roundtable, where we just talk a little bit of shit um, about Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, it Teddy Roosevelt is definitely not my favorite Roosevelt. And actually, I still want to do that, but I think that's going to be our bonus episode that will tie into this topic. But like most things that would have made my life easier, I just couldn't make myself do it. Um, <laughs> I really wanted to give our listeners a researched and scripted episode, but I do think we need a palate cleanser after more than three hours of talking about George Wallace. Oh my God. So, in, so we're going to do something a little bit different today. Instead of... You know, what we normally do is take this sort of, like, well-known figure and chop them down to size and, and talk shit about them. But instead, I'm, we're going to go a different route and take someone who's actually kind of awesome, who not as many people know about, and lift that person up. Okay. I, I, I do like awesome people. We're, we're gonna there get, aren't a whole lot of them. We're going to get a little bit more positive, at least in terms of our main character today. Um, and not only that, we, we were going to talk about one Roosevelt, and now we actually get two Roosevelts in this story. Dos Rooseveltes, as they say in Spanish, probably. Mm. Well, Eleanor Roosevelt is my personal favorite and hero. Yes. I know quite a bit about her, although I'm still like having to do a bunch of research. It's been between the children and yeah, I haven't been yeah. able to force myself to do anything. No, the, the, Bam the Bambi led Eleanor Roosevelt episodes are are coming. In the they'll, they'll come. <clears throat> and again, I even have fun children's stories that go with it. So Bambi, are you familiar at all with a woman named Frances Perkins? Frances Perkins, this name sounds, it's ringing a bell, but I'm not coming up with anything. So so based on your, you know, at least some Roosevelt familiarity, it's not surprising you at least sort of have heard the name before. So let me ask you a different question. Are okay. you, you familiar with a, with a movie called Dirty Dancing? <laughs> I am very familiar with a <laughs> yes. movie called Dirty Dancing. I asked that. Uh, I've seen it a couple of times. <laughs> Considering that movie was constantly like we you wore out the VHS tape and the vinyl oh. album. 
I had both vinyl albums, thank you very much, because there was Dirty Dancing, and then there was also more Dirty Dancing. Thanks to you, I can hear Patrick Swayze singing She's Like the Wind, like, in my ears at any moment, I feel like it. It was so great. Well, And you know what? (laughs) R.I.P. Rest in peace, Pat. Yeah, you know who wasn't a bastard? Patrick Swayze. I loved that man. Patrick Swayze. However, the main character in Dirty Dancing uh, had something that's actually a little bit in common with you because she went by a nickname that starts with the letter B given to her. Yeah, she had a stupid nickname and then an even worse first name. Right. I I relate. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. So at the end of the movie, after delivering the legendary nobody puts baby in the corner line, Patrick Swayze introduced Jennifer Grey's character to the audience by her the much more mature name on her birth certificate, Francis. Yep. In a throwaway line earlier in the film, Jennifer Grey explains that her character was named Francis in honor of the very first woman to sit on a United States presidential cabinet as our country's Secretary of Labor under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And without this extraordinary person, we probably wouldn't have things like the federal minimum wage, a 40-hour work week, an 8-hour work day, uh, child labor restrictions, and, you know, social security. Yeah, I really like all those things. This woman is the primary architect of the New Deal. And so today so today is kind of a treat for you, Bambi. I want you we're gonna get to know feminist icon and total badass Frances Perkins. Cool. Amen. And I have very little energy, so it's really good that I, I can yeah. yeah, here's somebody you can actually get behind and root for Hooray. for once. So let's get into it about Frances Perkins. So so here's a twist. Frances was not actually her original name. Um, on April 10th, 1880, Fanny Coraline Perkins, so yes, her name was Fanny, can't imagine why she'd want to change her name. Okay, because usually they give you a name like Francis and then call you Fanny. Nope, it was Fanny on her birth certificate. Her parents did oh, that to her on purpose. Oh, that's rude. And it's also funny, too, is like, you know, especially if you become familiar with overseas people, like in the UK and Australia, Fanny is, is slang for vagina. <laughs> So it's not even butt butt like it is here. It's front <laughs> butt. It is here. It's your front butt. Yeah, oh, so so she she didn't fun. hold on. She didn't hold on to that one for for life. It was like you know what? I don't want to be named after parts of my anatomy, front or back. Yeah. So she chose Francis as the as the better option. As the alternative. You know what? If these were my options, I would totally go with Francis because there's nothing wrong with the name Francis. Yeah, it's it's fine. Patrick, Patrick Swayze said it was a great name in front of a large crowd of people. And I tend to believe him. Um, so she was born on, in uh, Beacon Hill, on Beacon Hill in Boston, Massachusetts. And in some ways, she's like the very epitome of her stuffy New England Protestant upbringing. Like, like if you listen to her speak, she's almost a cliche. Uh, the, the Yankee values were drummed into the young girl's bones. Like work hard, live modestly, and help others. She also lived an intensely private life while also staying out of the personal business of others. She was like, my shit's not any of your business and vice versa. But her parents. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's usually uh, that that's that's the yeah. good person to know. Yeah, exactly. She she wanted you to stay out of her business and but also wasn't interested in yours. Her parents were both well-read and encouraged their daughter in the development of her mind, which was unusual considering, you know, Fanny here turned 20 in the year 1900. So, yeah, yeah, no, usually women's educations were not a priority. 
They didn't have any sons. They had two daughters, so maybe that was some part of it. So they just poured all of their, their hopes and dreams for the future into their girls. Um, so, uh, and even though because of the education that they pushed her towards, it kind of expanded her into politics and thinking way outside of anything that they would be comfortable with. Uh, just to give you an idea about her upbringing and, and what kind of a parent she had, I'm going to read you what Frances recorded her mother saying when purchasing hats in the year 1890. So, so Frances, or Fanny rather, is 10 years old right now. And Mrs. Susan Perkins purchased her daughter a rather plain, like, tri-corner hat and dropped some truth on her. There, my dear, is your hat, her mother said. You should always wear a hat something like this. You have a very broad face. It's broader between the two cheekbones than it is up at the top. Your head is narrow above the temples than it is at the cheekbones, and it lops off very suddenly at your chin. The result is that you need to have as much width in your hat as you have in your cheekbones. Never get yourself a hat that is narrower than your cheekbones because it makes you look ridiculous. Oh, you know, that's some good advice. I personally would like to talk to some women about bangs just because you don't need miles and miles of forehead. No. Now, her mom was like her, her her like brutally honest best friend here. It's like, don't wear one of these other kind of hats. You will don't, look like Don't wear these shitty hats. They're not <laughs> flattering and it makes you look stupid. I mean, I totally get that. That's that's good parenting. Sorry, Fanny. You do not have the face for a high hat. It's just you don't want a happen. high hat. You know, not everyone's made for it. So it's right there. The Yankee attitude of like brutal honesty, practicality, and make your children intensely aware of their shortcomings. So, Francis once wrote that her father never once told his daughters they looked pretty, ever, his entire life. Because that would be considered sinful. He might say, you look ladylike. That would be, like, the most of a compliment dad would ever give. Well, you know what? I'm... Mm. But I guess it's better than getting a little it, too interested You know, in it's better than... I mean, what? It's like, how were they complimented otherwise? They were, you know, I, they were told I, to be smart. This isn't me talking shit about her parents. I'm just saying this is the the kind of like, you know, New England Protestant, you know, upbringing. The pro- oh, the New England Protestant where they actually wanted their women to be intelligent and didn't really focus too much on their looks and beauty. Yep. I mean, yeah, these are terrible people. Let's throw them overboard. <laughs> now, so far, they seem all right, even if, uh, like, I said, all right. like I said, Francis is going to kind of drift past anything they're, they're, in their experience. So even later, when Francis was negotiating labor disputes with dirty men in hard hats, she spoke with a stuffy New England affect that must have been off-putting. So I'll admit, because there's a lot of recordings of her. Um, and I, when I was listening to a lot of them and reading direct quotes, I, I kind of made a face the way she uses the word one uh, instead of personal pronouns. She's like, one should do this and one shouldn't do that, you know? Very like this. Um, and, if, and at first yeah, it's... Well, that's, that's how ladies were supposed to talk, though. Yeah. And especially and, if you were brought up, uh, like, with a governess. Yeah, I mean, and they were, they were kind of... That is how they would... They, they were kind of like middle class family, but and it sounds mm-hmm. to me, but it's like it honestly, like once I've read a lot more and listened to her speak a lot more over the last week, um, it's really seems to be more part of her humility and sense of privacy. Uh, like you know, instead of saying you know I should you know I did this and I did that, she's like one does this. It's it's a way of making it not about her and just being about what's sensible and practical and for everyone. No, yeah, what what people should do, not just right. what she is doing. Because she's I mean, one that, thing one thing again. she does not have is a lot of personal pride. She does not put her own ego 
into the the things that she tries to accomplish, which is something I oh, really admire. About which her. is why she was really effective instead yeah. of just a douchebag like um, most other politicians and yeah. shit. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. So she got the, stuff done. The fact that you know, the fact that you didn't immediately know a lot about her when I'm sure is actually kind of by her design. She actually went to a lot of trouble so we wouldn't have much to talk about. Like she apparently destroyed a number of notes and letters and stuff she didn't want journalists who she didn't trust or his, or historians to ever get a hold of it because once again she felt like her private life was that and she didn't really yeah, give a shit it was hers she wouldn't be couldn't be interested uh, in us talking about her and her legacy right now she couldn't care less if she if there's some you know version of her in the afterlife it's off working hard and not giving a shit about her to us talking about her yeah well i mean if she gave us all the cool shit that you uh claim she did yeah and again, yeah. it's like, well, she didn't. I guess she didn't want us to focus on her. We, she wanted us to focus on her work. So let's yeah. do it. Plus, you'll see some reasons why she got intensely private, even going forward, even when she had a public position. Uh, so yeah, before Bahura was always about the work to be done, the best that could be done, and she was willing to compromise. She's willing to work with questionable people as long as it made progress towards the long-term goals. And damn, if this woman didn't get a lot done. So let's jump into it. So we'll go back to Francis's early life. Uh, One thing that was definitely a huge influence was her parents' combination of social conservatism and political liberalism, as author David Brooks put it. So meaning they were very strict and modest in their private lives, but they devoted part of their time to like charitable works, helping people, and they voted in government uh, that, you know, they believed that government should preserve good order by helping people. So they believed in an active you know, a government. So, so very unusually for the end of the 19th century, they also placed a large value of education for their daughter and supported education, you know, for women in general. And the early stories of, of Francis in like high school were that she was very, very smart, but very much a slacker. So I related to her instantly. She's like, yeah, I don't want to do all the work. (laughs) Yeah. She made mediocre grades and didn't really stand out. in at least in high school, um, but then her parents helped her and she uh, moved into Mount Holyoke College where she could be introduced to issues and causes that hadn't really reached her in her much more sheltered family life. So the culture of this all-girls school was much more about like correcting moral weakness and teaching self-discipline. So obviously there was education going on, but instead of this idea of college is here to freely ex- like explore ideas, this is more like you need to understand that you're this flawed sinner and you need to work <laughs> on yourself. Oh, yeah. So teachers were That's fun. so so she had some experiences uh, several that she recounted that I didn't weren't worth making this even longer to get into here but she had several like of her of college professors that kind of like really beat her down gave her a hard time but then later on she was super grateful because she felt like they really instilled that you just pushed it. even when you even when it sucks even when you hate it you just get shit done it's not about whether you like it or not or whether you know how you're feeling at the moment and that really yeah, kind of it's not about her. you yeah. Not about her. So, uh, her teacher successfully broke her out of old bad habits and instilled a tireless worker mentality she'd maintained for life, even and especially when doing stuff she hated. So, one of the best examples here is her college major. And this is where she and I, who started a little bit alike, we immediately diverge off forever. (laughs) So... So just like me, she was drawn to history and literature and was completely baffled by chemistry. But unlike me, she decided to major in her weakest subject. So the idea being, if she mastered the thing she was worst at, she could handle anything. 
And she did. So she was bad at chemistry, so she majored in it and didn't even make great grades. Like, she just pushed her way through the hardest things she could think of. Um, at, at the same time, she made herself as busy and useful as possible. So she a acted as the executive for like half the activities on campus. She was constantly volunteering and organizing all kinds of stuff that was going on all over the college. So Sounds later, exhausting. Oh yeah, no, she, she was one of those people who had to be busy. Um, as reported in the Evening Star, which was a Washington, D.C. newspaper, quote, In college, she was ripe for work, and the mark she made on her classmates at Mount Holyoke caused them to make her their permanent class president. It was the class of 1902. So she got voted in, in charge of everything, because she was so busy volunteering, they figured, you know, why not? <laughs> Just put her in charge of everything. She wants she'll, to be in charge of everything. Again. She'll do it. Ugh. She's um, like that PTA mom I don't like. <laughs> except she was the, P, you know, she was the 20-year-old girl. Now, the idea of social service as part of her religion got a serious boost while Frances was in college, as this was the big moment for a religious movement called the Social Gospel. I don't even ever heard of this one because it's faded long away by now. But when you find out what these people are all about, you'll be a little sad to hear how far modern, mainstream, like, evangelical Christianity has gone away from, from these guys at the Social Gospel. So, like, they're the opposite of prosperity gospel douchebags like Joel Osteen. Um, okay. At its most basic, the social gospel decided to take the idea of the Lord's Prayer from the Gospel of Matthew and put it into real world practice. So, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, in other words, instead of just accepting that things suck around here, but, but a better life awaits in heaven, they say the job of a true Christian is to work and sacrifice to build a world closer to the kingdom of God here on earth. That means helping people, feeding people, serving, um, you know, the sick. Oh, and the so needy. that's why this religion died off. Oh yes, yeah. It was about service. Yeah, it didn't. It, it's not about making power, people rich and powerful. It's about hum humbling yourself and helping others. So it had stood no chance in the United States long term. Oh. So these folks became the, the religious segment of the progressive movement in the United States. So they were fighting public policy wars over injustice, poverty, and human suffering in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, it was also an important part of the labor movement in the early 20th century, and its ideas were incredibly influential to young Perkins. I don't know, but this actually sounds like a church I could get behind. No, these people were very cool. For one, for once! <laughs> no, I remember, you know, I, I minored in religion at a private <laughs> Christian college, and I read some of these uh, these social gospel people, and it's like, yeah, their, their ideas are in debate, but now they'd be like, eh, socialists! How dare you want Jesus? Communism. Jesus you wasn't have to about scream about communism. Jesus wasn't about feeding the hungry or anything. Yeah. So Jesus as, was a socialist, y'all. Mm -hmm. As class president, Francis chose "Be ye steadfast" as their class motto. She took the verse from First Corinthians: "Quote, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for so much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord." Unquote. It's all about just holding true to the cause and, and know that your work is going to pay off in the end, regardless of whether you're around to see it or enjoy the results of it. It's about holding on. So that's like, you know, that's her motto she made for her class and very appropriate for herself. And she remained a woman of faith for her whole life, except she, her version of faith involved actual like work, not just, yeah. not just on the small personal level, but trying to make change in the world. Yeah, normally they just, you know, they're shitty all week and then go to church on Sunday and now they're good Christians. But college and a new perspective on her faith changed the young woman. So when her mother visited, uh, she found the, the changes in Francis troubling and is quoted as saying, 
I don't recognize my daughter Fanny anymore. I can't understand it. She's a stranger to me. And Susan Perkins' daughter would officially change her name to Frances in 1905 when she joined the Episcopal Church. Because she was just like, for, for Christ's sake, please stop calling me Fanny. Yeah. No, I do not want to be Fanny anymore. I'm Frances. I do not want to be Fanny. So after leaving college, she took a position teaching at a girls' school in Lake Forest, Illinois. But then she got involved with another element that grew out of the social gospel movement, something called the Settlement Movement, and its most prominent location, Hull House in Chicago. And having lived near Chicago for a decade, I can tell you, Hull House is a very famous spot. And it was part of this, uh, this settlement movement I was telling you about. So it's, this was a movement that was around in the late 19th and 20th century. It was a program designed to link the rich and middle class with poor and working class people by literally putting them up close to one another and creating social connections. Um, the main focus was establishing these settlement houses, which Hull House was the, like, primo example of. So, volunteers from better circumstances would live and work directly with these poor people, but in a condition of service. So, a middle-class woman might volunteer as a counselor or assistant or advisor on some project. So, according to David Brooks, Hull House offered job training, child care, a savings bank, English lessons, even art classes. So the idea being that the settlement houses would not only materially improve the lives of the poor people there, but also give them exposure to things like art and music and culture that would not be available to them. So it's like, it's like saying, okay, all you local people who've got it good, you need to volunteer some of your time and help out the people who don't have it so good, but you're not, going, you're not there to condescend to them. You're, you're here to literally work for them and help them. You're going to humble yourself. And help the poor? Yeah. Like Jesus? But all but all, but not only that, but by creating these social connections, you're building these like you're building these little social bridges in between the poorer and wealthier communities. And it all that always opens up doors and provides opportunities for everybody and just opens everybody's eyes when you suddenly see how things are on the other side of the tracks. It's like it had multiple things it was trying to do. So at Hull House, Frances worked directly with its legendary co-founder, Jane Addams, and threw herself into a life of service to the cause while being trained to, to distance her own emotions. So, so like, Adams did not trust people who committed acts of compassion uh, based on mood and emotion. Like, she was like, if you're looking for the person to thank you or be grateful or turn their lives around, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You, you shouldn't be focused on this short-term stuff or, or any kind of emotional high you get from feeling like you've helped somebody. Instead, you're there to serve them. Uh, you, in fact, you know, if somebody doesn't even give a shit or is ungrateful, you still do the work and be just as glad as you did it because it's the work that is where the value comes. Yeah, not, that's, where, there, that's where it's satisfying. That's right. where the, that's where grace lies. Right. She also reminded those working in her house that they were there to like serve the needs of their charges. They were not there to condescend or to take away people's decisions or agency. So like, you know, they, they, you know, they might have advice, they might have help to offer, but was never about taking people's choices away or making them feel like it was their fault that they were poor or, you know, desperate. And that was not allowed whatsoever. Um, only quiet pride in committing to the work long term was permitted. So it was during her time at Hull House that Frances got a real idea of the institutional problems stacked, that stacked the deck against immigrants and the working poor. And she'd devote decades of her life to making changes on scales both small and impossibly large. So in 1907, Frances moved from Chicago to Philadelphia to take a job with an organization doing work she cared about, the Philadelphia Research and Protective Association. So she showed up in town with almost no belongings, nowhere to live, arriving with a wave of poor immigrants looking for work. 
And she was direct witness to seeing young women being lured into boarding houses or being given stuff, you know, information by fake employment agencies or women who are just straight up drugged in order all of these designed to force women into prostitution. That is so awful. So she literally gets off the train, sees this with her own eyes, and that was also her first big job for the PRPA, was to conduct an investigation. Yeah, stop. Yeah, because you should definitely not do that. Yeah. So here she was in a new town, and she immediately poses as a potential victim to get inside these shady places and learn about their practices firsthand. So this tiny little woman, like, goes into these places and would get in the faces and confront pimps. And tell them off to their face with her like unflappable stuffy New England temperament. So according to one the doc- does not do this. One does not drug women and force them into prostitution. One does not. Agreed. <laughs> uh, according to the documentary summoned Francis Perkins and the General Welfare, quote, after investigating 165 employment agencies and 100 boarding houses, Perkins published a public report that pressured city officials to run regular police patrols at docks and train stations and to write a new ordinance requiring stricter licensing of lodging houses and employment offices, unquote. So she went in person into over 265 of these places, putting herself oh in God. personal danger. Like they're going to literally try to... You know, and somehow, and, by the grace of God, she was just fine. Well, and through the grace of her own attitude, mm-hmm. because, like, yeah. she had a pair on her. Hype, <laughs> you know, metaphorically speaking. So, having kicked ass in Philly, Frances moved to New York City in 1909 when she was awarded a research scholarship by Columbia University. So, she's going to pursue her master's degree and do some direct research uh, in there. So... Her research project was to the awful conditions in the poor immigrant neighborhood known as Hell's Kitchen. So she's going to go defend Hell's Kitchen just she's, like she's a gonna, daredevil? She's researching Hell's Kitchen and writing about how, uh, how bad things are. So, and while she was neck deep in the problems of poverty and exploitation by day, she lived and socialized in Greenwich Village by night, where she attended lectures and concerts, dining with philosophers, radicals, reformers, writers, and artists. Oh, that sounds fun. That sounds awesome. She's Although, like, I mean, just a side note, if you're going to name something Hell's Kitchen, I mean, don't you assume that it's going to be shitty? So some of Francis's friends include Jack Reed, who was a journalist and communist activist who later covered and supported the Russian Revolution, uh, and Sinclair Lewis, who is a famous author who wrote, among other things, a novel about the potential rise of American fascism. So like after Hitler rose to power... Uh, Sinclair Lewis wrote a novel about you know how that thing that happened over there it could totally happen over here and then everyone ignored him and still ignores him to and, this very day and still ignores him and but the good news is is nothing like that ever happened and we've been fine ever since yeah. right we haven't been slowly <laughs> tiptoeing closer to fascism every day for a while now um it's also at this time Francis met a young Franklin Roosevelt who did not much impress her at the time uh well she thought he was kind of an arrogant prick he actually was. Yeah, he, um, he, that's a fucking fair assessment. Mm-hmm. So she she did didn't really associate much with uh, with FDR when she first met him because she didn't really think FDR much. FDR was again a really super awesomely complicated dude. Yep. I but, mean, but for here he just kind of like walks on the stage, waves, and walks off again. Yep. So while finishing her master's degree in economics and sociology. She became active in the women's suffrage movement. So she was holding signs on street corners, attending protest meetings, and you know fighting for women's rights to vote. As she should have been. 
Absolutely. She then made waves by accepting a position heading up the New York office of the National Consumers League, working to end child labor and improving working conditions in factories and mills. And this is where Child she labor laws are important. Yeah. And we didn't have them back then. We didn't have them, yeah. This it's is like, the... here, go shove yourself up this chimney, child. Hope you don't die. Yeah. This is where you'd see the eight-year-old smoking his cigarette on his three-minute break in the middle of his 16-hour workday. Um, yeah, not cool. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Uh, and this is when Frances became a direct witness to a national tragedy that would make her even more determined to help the working people of her country. So... Uh, do you ever remember hearing about an event in New York called the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire? Yes. Yeah. I mean, actually... Uh, yes, that's it's horrific. I've seen documentaries on it. Yeah, I remember yeah. way back... Uh, yeah, I was one of the most uh, famous, well, infamous workplace disasters in American history. I remember watching a TV movie about this back in high school where, like, the teacher had something to do, so she just wheeled in mm. a TV and VCR on the cart. And we watched, uh, we watched it. I mean, there's plenty of information for anyone who'd like to learn more about the fire. Um, I highly recommend the semi-recent episode of Behind the Bastards on the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. He goes into it in detail. Um, but for those who don't know, it was a garment factory located on the top three floors of a 10-story building in Greenwich Village. It caught fire on March 25th, 1911. When some anonymous asshole almost certainly tossed a lit cigarette into a bin filled with months worth of dry cotton scraps. <sighs> and even though there was no smoking allowed uh, in the place, a lot of these, uh, there's like mostly women who work the actual machines, uh, you know, or were, were sewing everything together and doing the sewing and cutting. But there were men who would attend to the machines and supervise stuff. And even though they weren't supposed to smoke, a lot of them would um, like smoke and they would blow it inside their, their lapel of their jacket or whatever. So, so that'll help. And they just kind of looked the other way because nothing bad happened until one day this guy was somebody almost certainly just tossed out a, a cigarette right into just where all these little trimmings have been going in this big bin for months. Just dry cotton, just all piled up with plenty of air in between. Yeah, that, that won't start a fire. It's fine. So the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was filled with about 500 workers on an average day, usually very young Italian and Jewish immigrant women. Yeah, I mean, didn't they have girls as young as five and six in there? Um, I don't know if they had girls that young. They did have a lot of teenage girls. Yeah, I think the youngest victim was 14, but, but we'll, we're about to get into it a little bit. So these ladies averaged a 52-hour work week and earned what would be in modern dollars, $3.67 to $6.29 per hour. So like the top earner was making less than what would be considered our shitty minimum wage even now and had to work 52 hours a week when you're like a 14-year-old girl. It's fun. Uh, the, the focus of factory management was keeping people working at all times and preventing theft. So, you know, like an Amazon warehouse. Mm -hmm. so, so the doors to the stairwells and exits were locked and employees were forced through these choke points so they could be searched. So you weren't stealing, you know, weren't stealing cloth so you could make underwear at home. Yeah, it's like in a factory where there's really not much that they would even be able to steal yeah. or want. Cool. But again, that's, yeah. that's what's important. Policy. Obsessed. With, you know, employee slacking off and theft. There was no sprinkler system. There was only one fire escape, which was rickety and also blocked off. So completely useless. Uh, when the fire first broke out, the first response was to pro try to prevent property damage rather than evacuating employees. 
the decision that no no doubt cost dozens of lives. Like some experts say that if they immediately went into evacuation, not a single person needed to have died. But because of some about about three to five minutes worth of really bad decisions as this thing happened, it cost a lot of, of people their lives. So according to Frances Perkins herself, quote, I happened to have been visiting a friend in Washington Square, and we rushed over to see this building, which we could see was ablaze. And the people began to jump. The men were trying to put up a net to catch people, but the weight of the body was so great and the speed at which they were traveling that they broke through the net. They hit the sidewalk. Oh. So she, like, she was having, like, this afternoon tea or whatever with some friends, and they heard people shouting. And so she goes and literally sees this building on fire and watches desperate people literally jumping out of the eight to tenth story because they had no other choice. There's, like, one story of one, one man... Who was standing at the window and he literally was holding these girls and women out at arm's length and dropping them. And finally the last woman next to him, he kissed her passionately and then he shoved her out and immediately dived out right after her. As the flames were literally like licking his shoulders. Like, And Frances Perkins stood in the streets and watched the whole thing unable to do shit. Which was horrific. Just as people just splattering on the sidewalk and screaming out the windows. And again, to prevent fat... And I don't know if it was... uh... Was it the textile fire or was it the supermarket fire where they were actually like, oh, it was a supermarket fire where they actually like blocked. Oh, yeah, that was that horrific story. Yes. So uh, as far as this factory fire goes, every single person who jumped died. Every single person trapped inside died. Ultimately, 123 women, many of them teenage girls, and 23 men died from burns, smoke inhalation, or their bodies breaking on the pavement. So... Oh my god. Yeah. It was a bad one. And and so it was like, and it was one of the few events that really kind of broke through the public consciousness. Because normally striking workers, nobody give a shit about them. Especially immigrants. You know, these people. Yeah, but once once you're actually seeing like the dead bodies of little girls on the sidewalk. When you're watching them. It's a little bit more. Oh my god. (laughs) Watching them leap out of smoking windows, screaming to their deaths. Horrific deaths, yeah. yeah. So so the horror sunk in in New York City, and they sort of collectively seemed to remember that like a year before, no, two years before, a Russian immigrant a woman led a strike uh, for safety concerns uh, for these local garment factories. And the city pretty much ignored, all while the, the company guards violently fucked with the picket line, as usual, and nothing really had gotten changed. And nothing happened. Yep. Uh, it's, but this time there were too many dead teenage girls to ignore the problem, and the tragedy seemed to make people ready for some real change. Frances herself was forever scarred by the incident. So while like you like you'd already yeah. seen that her she was already dedicated to helping people and stuff, but this like before this she was still kind of this typical idealistic liberal, where it's like it's all about saying the right things and hanging out around the right people as long as you're sort of performing and saying you're doing it. She, this is kind of the breaking point where she's like, it doesn't matter. If I have to get my hands dirty, if I have to work with people that I don't like, if I have to compromise, if it means preventing people from having to choose between burning alive or leaping to their deaths, I'm willing to to do some, you know, some uncomfortable work. Yeah, well, you know, Aaron and I have been watching this, the documentary on Netflix, Turning Point, about 9-11, and, um... You know, and I've I've seen all the footage before, but I mean, they have some really horrific footage. Oh, no. And one of, part of the footage is you watch, watching the people jump yeah. 
from the high ends of the buildings, just people leaping. And it was, I mean, and I'm scarred from witnessing it on television. Yeah, yeah, watching on television. Yeah, I've listened to some of the 911 calls that came from within the building. Yeah, I mean, the entire entire documentary is a little upsetting and it's a little jarring and scarring. So I can only imagine standing there. Yeah. And And in this case, even with a building that high from the ground, it's still surreal. Could you imagine it being so much closer? Oh, no, yeah, because this is only a 10-story building. Like, you could see people's girls. faces <laughs> as they were jumping. I mean, it was. I can only I mean, imagine that, what they I, would do I can't. I can't. And again, I've seen that documentary, and I've just seen uh, still pictures <laughs> right. of this particular incident. I, I can't imagine. I can imagine her being fucking scarred for life. Yeah, that was a no, I think I'm a little her. scarred from life talking yeah. about it. It's, it's rough. not okay. So, after the fire, Frances left her position with the National Consumers League and took a recommendation from a goofy-looking, bespectacled man named Theodore Roosevelt, (laughs) becoming the executive secretary for the Committee on Safety of the City of New York. There, she investigated other workplace fires and pushed against the circumstances that led to these disasters. So, so she got that. So, like I said before, this is the point where getting shit done becomes her top priority. So, doesn't matter who she needed to work with, what compromises she needed to be forced to accept, or what anyone thought of her. It was always about forward progress. Sometimes slow, often slow, but sometimes blindingly fast. And she didn't connect her own identity to the work, so it didn't matter just how tarnished some of that work had to be. So, working in Albany, Francis left political idealists behind and started working with the Tammany Hall political machine, which... Is like one of the most famously corrupt organizations in the history of the country. Uh, they pretty much control politics for the city and state of New York. And while it's true that they engaged in a lot of shady practices that both were or at least should have been illegal, depending on what, which thing we're talking about, it's also true that the Tammany machine got some really forward-thinking policies in place where they failed their parts of the country. So over, over time, the Tammany political engine ended up getting a lot of Irish immigrants involved. And so a lot of pro-immigrant government started happening just because of that through this really corrupt engine. And because these were these, you know, a lot of these people involved were more from the poor working class side. Francis, like, these are the people I need to work with. They're the ones in with the unions. These are the ones in with the labor organizers. And she also picked up on something that inspired her to change her personal style and approach as a woman working in a man's world. According to David Brooks, quote, One day she was standing by the elevators of the state capitol when a crude little senator named Hugh Frawley came out and started describing the confidential details of the backroom negotiations and moaning about the shameful work he was compelled to perform. Swept up in self-pity, he cried, Every man's got a mother, you know. Perkins kept a folder titled Notes on the Male Mind and recorded this episode in it. It played a major role in her political education. Quote, I learned from this that the way men take women in political life is to associate them with motherhood. They know and respect their mothers. 99% of them do. It's a primitive and primary attitude. I said to myself, that's the way to get things done. So behave, dress, and comport yourself that you remind them subconsciously of their mothers. Unquote. I, well... Well, at that point, they couldn't, you know, usually it's wives and daughters also, but, you know, but this is also in a time period where they didn't respect their wives or daughters or even pay attention to them much. So they had to go to the moms. 
a woman being anywhere. I have to dress like my mom. A woman being adjacent to government was so incredibly unusual at this time. So she had, she was the the one had to figure out how to, to even function in this world. So at the age of 33, Frances began dressing like a much older woman and began comporting herself more in the style of a middle-aged grandmother. And you actually go and look at the pictures of her. You'll see that like up through her 20s into her very early 30s, she dresses basically whatever the contemporary fashion is. Nothing, you know, just for a respectable, you know, woman. And then at 33, suddenly she just looks like a granny. She's wearing these like thick, dark dresses, these tri-corner hats and little bows tied to her neck. And, and, and then, and she just, and she already kind of has this New England, you know, governess thing going on and she just kind of leans into it. And so people tend to listen to her more that way. So all of a sudden she starts looking like Mary Poppins, but they take her damn seriously. Yeah. <laughs> it, it seems to work for her because she sticks with it. So a huge project was pushing through a statewide law to limit the work week to 54 hours. So that's nine hours, six days a week for people like me who are bad at math. And that's just, just desperately trying to get to that because people were averaging 60 or more hours a week back then. Yeah. Hires, Children. Yeah. Children yeah, were children, working children as well. Even though, like, a lot of times, like, well, children only had to work a slightly less than that. Uh, she worked tirelessly to convince the right people uh, to get it to the floor of the New York legislature. But when it came up, the lawmakers had added a huge exemption. It would not apply to the canning industry. So, like, and, and remember, this is pre-refrigeration. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, canning, the canning industry is a really big deal. And so suddenly... Oh, everybody else has to abide by the 54-hour work week in the state of New York, except one of the largest industries in the state of New York. So Frances had a choice. She could use her influence to kill the bill entirely or support it, even though one of the most important industries wouldn't be included. This is the where she makes that first choice. She decides to support the bill as is rather than let nothing be the actual result of all her hard work. And so a lot of other progressives screamed at her, like, oh, you shouldn't compromise. What are you doing? But she just bit her lip, and she was, like, grimly satisfied that, like, half half of the job was better than none. None. 50% and better yeah, than that's, 0%. That's pretty much how politics go. They yeah. never pass anything that would make it good. So, so she never apologized for compromising, and she ruthlessly compromises for the rest of her working life. Because, yeah. yeah, because it's that or get nothing or be an idealist who gets nothing done. Yeah, exactly. She didn't want it. That was the thing. She had spent that early time with those idealists. She was hanging out in Greenwich Village with all drinking martinis with all the authors and, you know, and socialists and all this stuff who talk a big game and they'll stand on the street corners and organize. But in terms of what, what are the actual results in the real world, you know, are very little. Whereas like she actually change working hours for a ridiculous number of people. So for the record, Eleanor Roosevelt hung out with those same people and came to the same conclusion of, yeah, you just got to do the work. Mm-hmm. It was during this time in her life. She was courted by a close aide to the mayor of New York city, a guy named Paul Wilson, a very handsome, very senior aide to the mayor and, and love letters between them would make one think there was real feeling and romance on both sides However, Frances never showed much enthusiasm when she was talking to her friends and her associates about the the whole thing. And years later, she claimed she never really had strong feelings for him at all, but that could be hindsight talking. Yeah. The two were married in September 1913 in a church with no friends and family in attendance and no special celebration afterwards. Later in life, she had this to say, as reported by Brooks. Quote, There was a New England pride in me. 
I wasn't anxious to get married. To tell the truth, I was reluctant. I was no longer a child, but a grown woman. I hadn't wanted to marry. I liked life better in a single harness. But people were constantly asking her when she would find a husband, so she decided to get out of the way, thinking, I know Paul Wilson well. I like him, and I enjoy his friends and company, and I might as well marry and get it off my mind. Unquote. <laughs> It's like check well, that off the box of stuff. I yeah, I, I, you'll do. Her, her, I settled for you, baby. And like, and I mean, he was good looking. Seemed, you know, had a good, a good job, and he would politically, you know, was in line with her. They agreed on. He was a very progressive dude. Uh, it is worth noting that she never changed her last name for her husband, and this was a hundred years ago. So. Wow. So she was real progressive. Mm -hmm. Super progressive. She had to change her first name to the one she wanted, and she wasn't about to change her last name for some damn man. Now, her excuse was that because he was, you know, politically associated with the New York City mayor, he was considered upwardly mobile in politics, and she didn't want all of the stuff she was doing to, to bleed over onto him was the excuse. But I get the feeling that she wasn't interested in having being Mrs. Wilson. Yeah, no. Um, I, I don't blame her. Well, the early years of their... Well, you'll, you'll see that she has to be. The early years of their marriage seemed to have been happy, but they didn't stay that way for too long. At first, Paul carried out an affair that went public. So there's like intense embarrassment socially. Then it was never brought up again, which is the New England way. Then, so she asked for a separation, but then she got pregnant with a boy who died shortly after childbirth. And she was grief-stricken, but again, like, once she got through her short-term grief, she never discussed that publicly, ever. However, she did become the executive secretary of the Maternity Center Association, which is an organization de dedicated to lowering infant and maternal mortality. So, very much in character for her, it's like, this is this terrible thing that happened. I need to join, I need to, to work on this and make this less of a problem for other people. So she takes her pain and tries to help others, which is like her go-to. Francis yeah, gave, which is really nice. It's admirable. Uh, you know, even though I do think she seems a little buttoned up and maybe could have used a therapist or something, I don't know. Francis gave birth again, this time to a little girl named Susanna, who survived in infancy and she lived to adulthood, but she, she had a tragic life in her own way, which more on that in a minute. Now, Paul Wilson suffered from mental illness, most likely manic depression. His wife later said of him, quote, It was always up and down. He was sometimes depressed, sometimes excited, unquote. And so things got worse until Wilson's compulsions caused him to blow his entire life savings on a gold scheme that turned out to be a scam. So all his money's gone because <laughs> he was like on a manic, you know, I can, I'm a get-rich-quick scheme. Mm -hmm. He could go into rages, sometimes even get violent. Um, but as his issues got increasingly worse, he spent more of his remaining years in asylums. So he actually literally had to be institutionalized. And even during these periods... And he, he was a dude, so... Yeah. You know he was crazy. Yeah, he was crazy. Because like, if like, it would have been her, I mean, she could have just been, you know, having a bad day. <laughs> yeah, when he was stable enough to be home, he had a nurse that everyone just sort of politely called his secretary, you know, for the sake of his pride. Frances spoke of her husband's breakdown as the accident and moved forward with her life, knowing it was up to her to support her family on her own. And as an emotionally private person, she wasn't about to share her feelings in a venue where we'd learn about it today. So we don't really know much about how she felt about all this. She just rolled up her sleeves and did what she had to do. Um, over the years, her daughter Su Susanna proved to have inherited her father's mental illness, was never able to properly fend for herself. 
So Frances was still working when she was 77 years old to provide a roof over her daughter's head. So like her own, her daughter is so like manic depressive or bipolar or whatever. Her issues are so extreme. Even she's not able to take care of herself. Mom has to do it Um, her whole life. Oh, that's terrible. So yeah. So when it came to her family situation, Frances did not have a great thing going on. She picked so, the wrong dude. Yeah, she, that's what you get when you just pick a husband to check off a... Yeah, you'll do. <laughs> check off a box. You might want to vet them a little bit more for, for mental health. Oh, well. It was in Albany where Francis got a huge opportunity with New York Governor Al Smith, who Francis adored and admired. He appointed her to the Industrial Commission, the state workplace regulatory agency. So suddenly she was making a respectable salary. I think it was like $8,000 a year at the time, which is like over, it'd be a six, like over $100,000 a year in today's money. Uh, she was making good money and um, diving in the middle of labor disputes between union organizers and corporate bosses. She threw herself into the work and used her motherly persona to scold the men into listening and talking. James M. Lynch, another New York commissioner, said her work was invaluable and that, quote, from the work which Miss Perkins has accomplished, I'm convinced that more women ought to be placed in high positions throughout the state departments. Unquote. So he's like, hey, we got a Yay. woman in here and, and she's doing a good job. Maybe we should get more chicks. Maybe they huh? would, maybe there's too many dudes around here. Yeah, well, you know, alternate perspectives do help. Yeah. It's like you, you bring a woman in and show that she not only can do a good job, but because she can do a great job. And they're like, oh, okay. Some people are open-minded enough to think, hey, this is a thing we should do more of. It was yeah. during this time that Frances got reacquainted with Franklin Roosevelt, who she found she liked much better after polio had gotten a hold of him. Yeah, you know what? A lot of people did. I mean, he was kind of an arrogant shit. Yeah, and yeah, polio kind of humbled him a bit. I mean, not completely. I mean, FDR still had plenty of ego. But, you know, when you can't stand up, when you need people to help you with basic things, it kind of gives you a perspective shift. Yeah. Well, and his marriage got a lot more on the level side at that point, too. Yeah, and FDR, this is the moment where FDR is officially on the rise. So he succeeded Smith as the governor of New York uh, in the election of, this is 1928. He immediately, and this is, you know, as the Great Depression is starting to get, you know, is really getting going. He immediately offered Francis the job of industrial commissioner for the state. So literally, instead of just being one of the commissioners, she's now in charge of the whole department. And in what will become a familiar dance between the two of them, she tried to get out of the appointment without directly saying no. But FDR insisted, and then she did the job. In this case, she was managing a state agency with 1,800 employees. And how did she do? According to biographer George Martin, who I'm almost certain did not write Game of Thrones, quote, As an administrator, she was good, perhaps even more than good. As a judge or legislator, she was quite extraordinary. She had a judicial temperament and a strong sense in all situations of what was fair. She was always open to new ideas, and yet the moral purpose of the law, the welfare of mankind, was never overlooked. Unquote. So, she did her job and did it with compassion, open and fairness. And yeah, she, she was really good. <laughs> High marks, A+. Plus. She was awesome. She as, was a good judge by using logic, reason, and fairness. So, as the labor commissioner of New York State, she, she did great. Francis used her connections and increasing influence to make extremely progressive reforms in the wake of the Great Depression. Every day while waiting for her morning train, she could witness old ladies dragging, like digging through garbage cans to find edible food. And she saw people desperate for jobs that could actually support families. And so working with FDR, she reduced the maximum weekly work week for women to 48 hours and pushed for their safety. 
She pushed for, the, for a minimum wage and the creation of unemployment insurance. She called for the end of child labor in the state. And all these programs proved intensely popular. And so as FDR is pushing through these things that Francis is coming up with, he's getting more popular because of it and bringing her even more closer, realizing this lady, you know, her ideas are really a big part of, of what I'm doing right here in New York. Yeah. So he became well, a dumb- FDR did surround himself by intelligent women. He, yeah. he was all about that. Yeah, for sure. He did not dis. Yeah, and he valued their opinions, which was different than most men of the time. Mm-hmm. Very forward thinking. So, so he became a dominant political force in both New York and all across the country. And Roosevelt was ready to roll his way to Washington D.C. So, Mother Perkins, as the press sometimes called her, described FDR's national launch in these terms: "Quote: I'm going to give the people of this country a new deal." It's a card-playing term, and everyone understands it. We're going to deal out some new cards. I don't think that even then he had the remotest idea of what his program was going to be. But the newspapermen noticed it, and tore their newspapers to pieces and emblazoned them with a great headline. Roosevelt promises New Deal. And this is where the New Deal really began. So FDR comes up with this amazingly great slogan for, for what his program will be, the New Deal. So everybody who plays cards gets this idea. It's like, we're going to hit the reset button and give you a new chance. But he didn't actually have a program laid out. He just had this slogan and some He just had a ideas. slogan. And kind of his track record of bringing these more progressive, labor-friendly policies, you know, forward. So he had like a, kind of like a template, but he didn't actually have, the New Deal didn't exist when he started talking about it. So Franklin Roosevelt showed... That was about the, right. Yeah. So FDR showed the country was ready to give this New Deal a chance, even if he had only like half an idea of what it really was. But one thing was certain, just as Francis Perkins was key to his success in New York she would be equally crucial to the success of his presidential administration. So he asked Francis to join his cabinet as the Secretary of Labor. She tried to turn him down. (laughs) She wrote to him mentioning her family's unusual situation, husband institutionalized and such. It could be a source of potential embarrassment. And she wrote to him in this very long letter, I think that someone straight from the ranks of some group of organized workers should be appointed to establish firmly the principle that labor is in the president's councils. Unquote. FDR wrote her back on a piece of scrap paper. Have considered your advice and don't agree. Yep. And what's she going to do? And what's she going to do? When the president asks you to join his cabinet, you join this cabinet. And that's where we're going to end part one. This is actually going to be a two-parter because, once again, this, she, she does way too much shit to talk about in one episode. So yep. now we're going to start with her right at the beginning of FDR's, FDR's three-plus uh... three terms in office and... And her being the the primary architect of the New Deal. All right. So here we go. Some uh, feminist icon and total badass, Frances Perkins. Hooray. Yeah, I don't feel shitty about this. Yeah, an actual person. I don't have to go, cool. go away, like, feeling yeah. I, I need to cleanse well, myself. Since, since we just had Labor Day, I felt like this is like a, a Labor Day hero we should talk about. She deserves a little bit more. Yeah, because, you know, without our Labor Day hero, we probably wouldn't even have Labor Day. Because we'd all be working. Everybody would be working their their <laughs> seventy hour weeks. Um, th- thank you, listeners, uh, for checking us out. Hope you'll check out our ba- past episodes on George Washington, on George Wallace. The conclusion to this episode is coming soon, and there's also bonus stuff if you uh, follow and support us on Patreon, which you can now reach directly by going to ChainsawHistory.com. You can also follow us on all the socials, so you can actually find, just look up Chainsaw History on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We are all over these places. 
You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamie1KM. And if you want to see me play uh, a computerized Dungeons & Dragons game live, uh, you can come to my Twitch page on jamiechambers.tv and watch the Dead Characters Society. Fun stuff. You can't see me. I'm, I'm nowhere. hiding from the internet. I have been hiding from the internet since the internet's inception. But if you do go to chainsawhistory.com and start interacting on our community, I'm going to make Bambi participate. Uh, we're also going to yeah, be building... I'm... <laughs> All right. I keep not doing it. Yeah, we're also going to be, uh, you know, building a Discord community that's going to be part of what we're doing moving forward. We'll be doing uh, extra stuff to interact with our audience as we slowly catch up and figure this whole thing out. Yeah, we, we started out that we had a little bit of a fluffer, and now we're, we're down to we've have no, no fluff. We're no fluffless. Fluff. That's okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to catch us up a little bit. So. Yeah, and I do. I have a few things that I've, I've wanted to implement and do, but I just haven't had the time or the energy. So we'll get there. I keep, we'll get there. I, I, keep, I promise that one day I'll have energy again. We're going to try. It's been a rough month. <laughs> so uh, as far as charity stuff, in honor of Frances Perkins and her efforts to support workplace safety, this week I am recommending everybody check out the National Safety Council, which was founded in 1913 to reduce workplace accidents and increase safety standards across the board. So anybody wants to check that out and help them, go to nsc.org to learn more and contribute. Good times. Um, yeah, I actually, I'm going to have a charity pet project here very, very soon for Halloween coming up. Mm-hmm. So it'll, yeah, stay tuned for that. And also the progress of the uh, spooktacular haunted house. Looking forward to that. And Yes. Know. Bambi makes a spooktacular haunted house every year. And this year we're going to open it up for charity. Super cool. So really excited. Alrighty. Again, thanks for everybody listening. Uh, yeah, if you know, if I, I guess I would lead this out, we're all going through a lot right now. The world sucks, and I say take a page from Frances Perkins, who took her personal pain and issues and and channeled her frustrations and dissatisfactions into work that helped other people. And it's something we could all learn a little something from. Yeah, yeah, uh, some some selflessness and and some hard work and some dedication to change the world. That sounds. Really fantastic. So go support a picket line. Go do a thing. Give some money to a strike fund or quit your job. Don't quit your job. Do not. I'm quitting this job. I mean, if your job really sucks, I say go look for a new job. There's plenty of them right now. Well, I'm quitting this job, but I'll I'll resume it again tomorrow. See you guys next week. Bye. I quit.